0: Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics podcast. I'm Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas.
1: I'm Lisa Van Boxel at St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico.
2: And I'm Jeff Black at St. John's College in
0: Annapolis, Maryland, but visiting Colorado Springs. Today we're doing Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher. And hopefully Sonia can do some like weird uh, sound effects over my voice right there to make it sound all foreboding and Halloweeny. If, or not, you can, if not, you can, you can donate again. on our PayPal account, <laughs> 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 and we'll up up the budget for cool sound effects. Uh, so, Lisa's going to do a overview of the reading and uh, start us off with an opening question.
1: Okay. So, um, many listeners will probably be familiar with The House of Usher. It's uh, often, well, it's a perfect Halloween story. So we're we're just a little behind the game there, but it's not simply a Halloween story. I hope that'll become apparent as we. Proceed, but basically, there's this guy, the narrator, who visits a childhood friend um, years after they're both adults. Uh, because although he hasn't seen this friend for a significant period of time, the guy writes him and very sort of urgently indicates that he has to come and see him because he's he's in distress. Um, and he gets there and and realizes that this friend, who s- seems to be a sort of um, aristocrat in a declining house, um, is quite ill. And the nature of the illness is, is a bit of a mystery. His sister is also pretty ill. And as he watches the whole creepy uh, household, um, they both die and the house collapses. <laughs> so that's kind of, it, it is short. Um, but the question is, why does the house collapse so the title is the fall of the house of usher and i'm just going to say like why does the house of usher fall and i think by investigating that question we'll see it's actually quite a deep story by edgar Allan poe and um he manages to create this creepy atmosphere um that uh it's also worth dwelling on how he does that so i thought i would begin in order to sort of set up the tone and pay attention to details at the beginning of the story because beginnings of stories are always very important for good writers so the um so the audience can get some sense of the creepiness and and the kind of world we're moving into, and then I'll just note some observations about it, and then maybe we could just move around the story to pull out other relevant scenes to see what's happening. So Brian, you've got the the beautiful radio voice. Could you read for us the uh, first paragraph?
0: I finally found like a role that works for me where it's just like just just, just, just read aloud, just 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 read aloud. You know, so it's the it's the radio version of being pretty. You know, it's like if I'm pretty, just like just walk on camera. But here, it's don't just speak, like, just, just walk just, on camera. Just read aloud, okay? I'm not gonna. There is some French in the beginning here. I'm not gonna even try it, um, unless you guys want to try the French just to give the full opening. I'll I'll give the French here. Okay.
2: Son cœur est une lutte suspendue. Sitôt qu'on le touche, il résonne.
1: Do you want to do the translation for us, Jeff?
2: Yeah. Uh, This one's a little tricky, but uh, here's one possible translation. Uh, His heart is a hanging lute. As soon as one touches it,
0: it resonates. Okay. During the whole of the dull, dark, soundless day in the autumn of the year, when the clouds hung oppressively low in the heavens, I'd been passing alone on horseback through a singularly dreary tract of country and at length found myself as the shades of the evening drew on within view of the melancholy house of Usher. I know not how it was, but with the first glimpse of the building a sense of insufferable gloom pervaded my spirit. I say insufferable, for the feeling was unrelieved by any of that half-pleasurable, because-poetic sentiment with which the mind usually receives even the sternest natural images of the desolate or terrible. I looked upon the scene before me, upon the mere house and the simple landscape features of the domain, upon the bleak walls, upon the vacant eye-like windows, upon a few rank sedges, and upon a few white trunks of decayed trees, with an utter depression of soul, which I can compare to no earthly sensation more properly than to the after dream of the reveler upon opium, the bitter lapse into everyday life, the hideous dropping off of the veil. How's that? I'm pausing. Shatner-like pause. Anything there? <laughs> it's hard for me to like, so normally listeners, we, we look at each other, we're on video, and so I can we can all tell like when somebody wants to talk, but when I'm reading aloud, I can't keep eyes on both things (laughs) so I'll keep going yeah there was an iciness a sinking a sickening of the heart an unredeemed dreariness of thought which no goading of the imagination could torture into aught of the sublime what was it I paused to think what was it that so unnerved me in the contemplation of the house of usher it was a mystery all insoluble nor could I grapple with the shadowy fancies that crowded crowded upon me as I pondered I was forced to fall back upon the unsatisfactory conclusion that while, beyond doubt, there are combinations of very simple, natural objects which have the power of thus affecting us, still the analysis of this power lies among considerations beyond our depth. It was possible, I reflected, that a mere different arrangement of the particulars of the scene, or of the details of the picture, would be sufficient to modify or perhaps to annihilate its capacity for sorrowful impression. And acting upon this idea, I reined my horse to the precipitous brink of a black and lurid tarn that lay in unruffled luster by the dwelling, and gazed down, but with a shudder even more thrilling than before, upon the remodeled and inverted images of the gray sedge, and the ghastly tree stems, and the vacant eye-like windows.
1: Okay, so let me just start with a couple of observations. Thank you, Brian, for that. Um, Let's go back to... um About five sentences in or so, and repeat, he says, he's looking around, he says it's very gloomy, and he says, I say insufferable, it was insufferably gloomy, for the feeling was unrelieved by any of that half-pleasurable, because poetic, sentiment with which the mind usually receives even the sternest natural images of the desolate or terrible. I looked upon the scene before me upon the mere house and the simple landscape features of the domain, uh, sorry, of and the simple landscape features of the domain upon the bleak walls, upon the vacant eye-like windows, etc. So I wanted to pause there because um, it strikes me that one of the first things Poe highlights is the lack of mind, or at least human mind. Does that make, does you see that in that image? Is, I take it that's why it's... Um, it's unrelieved by the poetic sentiment, because the poetic sentiment infuses itself and beautifies it. But this none of that's going on here, so it's just insufferably gloomy.
2: Yeah, the, um, the image he describes uh, looks like a face, I guess. But the eyes yeah. of this face are said to be vacant, and that matches um, the narrator's own remark that his mind is not supplying anything to the scene either. So, that's this right. is a kind of uh, mindless looking looking at a mindless looking, if I can put it that way
1: right? that's right and, and And then he goes on to to speak. I think this is Poe alerting the reader through through um, the narrator here, but he says, um, I was forced to fall back upon the unsatisfactory conclusion that while beyond doubt, there are combinations of very simple natural objects which have the power of affecting us. Still, the analysis of this power lies among considerations beyond our depth so he's there turning our attention again to the the capacity of the human mind and he's saying well we can analyze certain things but but the source of that analytical power um we is opaque to us yeah mm-hmm.
2: the thing that impresses me is and it would be funny if the story as a whole in the beginning weren't so horrible is um, when he looks at the reflection of the house in the lake, the tarn is a, a little mountain lake in front of him, uh, he does see the elements in a different order. They're rearranged, as it were, and they do change. They seem to become um, even more thrilling than before, but it still looks like the overall impression uh, is, is of something, of a mindless face. That doesn't
1: yeah. change. Yeah. And this tarn proves to be significant. He mentions it a couple of times, but at the very end of the story, um, there's there's a line, a fissure in the whole house um, running through the house and the, and the moonlight sort of shining through and it it runs to the tarn. So here I take it, having read the story, we're all, all read the story and we're fl- reflecting back ourselves. It's ominous to me that the house is in an inverted form already within the tarn. So um, the Tarn is wrapped up in some way with the fall of the house, and I want to say, perhaps even causally, it might represent something. So with that possibility in mind, I just want to add to Jeff's um, alerting us to the meaning of the Tarn, that it's typically associated with sort of an an ancient kind of mountain pool. There's something very old about it too, typically, and that seems important. Okay, so then we, we move on from this, this introduction, which I think does set us up to, to some of the main elements that will then go on to be developed, um, to the moment where the narrator um, gives an account of the illness of this friend, Usher, and then we meet him. So any observations you guys had that would help us in those early moments to see what, is, what, what the problem is with this house?
2: Uh, I'll tell you, this this might seem like an odd uh, observation or remark, but one of the first things that puzzled me about this initial meeting is I can't figure out how young or how old the people in this story are. Um, There's something very puzzling about the past relationship. Our narrator is going to be surprised that Roderick Usher has a twin. uh, Yes. And uh, it's not clear to me how that could be surprising when they were intimate friends. And yeah. there's a lot of doubt about how long ago their friendship was. Right. So it looks to me like a case of premature aging. And it's somehow connected with a, a very interesting description of the house. And maybe I can uh, read a little bit of it here. Um, this is maybe five paragraphs in. Um he, uh, the, our narrator has just said that there's a kind of vapor around the house, and uh, I'm, I'm sure we should talk about that, but the part I'm thinking of is a little bit afterwards. He says that he scanned the real aspect of the building. Its principal features seemed to be that of an excessive antiquity. But then he goes on to say that that kind of antiquity is not the kind where the building is falling apart. It's all intact in its minutest pieces, but it looks like it's ready to fall apart. And so, again, there's this, this puzzling combination of it being very old and somehow not old at the same yes. time. Yeah.
1: Okay, Okay. so let's develop that notion of the house. I, too, will read a little bit. And this is actually very shortly after where we stopped reading. It's only about three paragraphs in or so. And I'll start in the middle of that paragraph. He's reflecting on this family. They've been friends as boys. And then he goes on to say, um, I had learned, too, the very remarkable fact that the stem of the Usher race." race, all time honored as it was, had put forth at no period an enduring branch. In other words, that the entire family lay in the direct line of descent, and had always, with very trifling and very temporary variation, so lain. It was this deficiency, I considered, while running over in thought the perfect keeping of the character of the premises with the accredited character of the people, And while speculating upon the possible influence which the one, in the long lapse of centuries, might have exercised upon the other. It was this deficiency, perhaps, of collateral issue and the consequent undeviating transmission, from sire to son, of the patrimony with the name, which had at length so identified the two as to merge the original title of the estate in the quaint and equivocal appellation of the House of Usher, an appellation which seemed to include in the minds of the peasantry who used it both the family and the family mansion. And I want to t- draw attention to a couple of things that Poe does that I don't think the narrator is att- notes, um, but we're supposed to as readers. And, and it'll become more apparent, I think, as we move forward, but again, since we're looking at it retrospectively as a reader's um, this should make sense to us. I'd learned too the very remarkable fact that the stem of the usher race, so that just speaking of it as a stem, um and then indicating that there's a merging it seems of the house, an apparently inanimate object with the people, yeah
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and why do I bring that up? I bring it up because um. Uh, a number of reasons, but maybe the one that's most striking is that when Roderick Usher starts to speak of um, some of the ideas that he has, one of them is that all beings, and maybe especially vegetable life, is sentient.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? right? So I think here that what I just read, there's a merging of, of plant and non-sentient with the human. Mm-hmm.
2: So you're thinking of an image, something like the family, the human beings actually being rooted in the tarn, and the house being rooted in the tarn, and these are two um, growths from the same roots, something like that.
1: Something like that, yes. Yeah, so obviously, we have to do do more, but I, I yeah, I feel like the the rocks, um, which, as you said, Jeff, they've been they've been relocated from some other place and reordered. But they carry something with them, something ancient, it looks like, as does the tarn. And there's a takeover by these inanimate and and vegetable entities of the human being. So that um, when we start wondering whether that's the case, it's not going to solve for us the details of what this is supposed to signify for us as readers. But it turns out that the brother, Roderick, the friend, has this acutely developed and highly sophisticated, highly educated and cultured mind. His sister, who we never hear from while she's, you know, um, before she's apparently dead, um, has a disease whereby she sort of becomes immobile, sort of catatonic. So it's like they've split mind and body. She's like this body that wanders around sort of mindlessly, and he's becoming hyper mind. Yeah.
2: yeah, that makes some sense to me. There's um, another characteristic that he has, and maybe this refers to the epigraph. Um, and maybe we can figure out how this fits with um, him being hyper mind. He's uh, said to be exquisitely sensitive. Yes. Right. So only certain sounds, only certain foods, a very narrow um, range of those things are tolerable to him yeah so maybe this uh would be an effect of being a kind of naked or exposed mind right in other words one stripped from body
1: and that of course goes with the what you offered in this a translation of the French um, prefixed quotation to the piece yeah can we just I, I Brian, if you could read for us again i i I know we don't all have the same text, but there's a there's a paragraph just a little bit farther from where we were where he um, is literally ushered into Usher's room, and we get this description of the room and of Usher. Um, could, could If you could find that, bright? it begins, The room in which I found myself was very large and lofty. Yep, got it. Yeah, yeah, great.
0: The room in which I found myself was very large and lofty. The windows were long, narrow, and pointed at so vast a distance from a black oaken floor as to be altogether inaccessible from within. Feeble gleams of encrimson light made their way through the trellised panes and served to render sufficiently distinct the more prominent objects around. The eye, however, struggled in vain to reach the remoter angles of the chamber or the recesses of the vaulted and fretted ceiling. Dark draperies hung upon the walls. The general furniture was profuse, comfortless, antique, and tattered. Many pause, books... Pa- oh, yeah.
1: Sorry, sorry. Could we just pause there briefly? When I read this, um, and I did this actually with, with my class, too, um, I think this is the church. Mm. Or if it's not literally a church, I think Poe is certainly giving us you know, overtones of church. So, that's why I wanted to pause there. But look, he's in a room which is large and lofty. The windows are long, narrow, pointed. There's a black oaken floor. There's feeble gr- feeble gleams of encrimsoned light. Mm-hmm. So I, let's keep that in mind as we move forward and get the description of what follows, and including Usher himself.
0: Many books and musical instruments lay scattered about, but failed to give any vitality to the scene. I felt that I breathed an atmosphere of sorrow, an air of stern, deep, and irredeemable gloom hung over and pervaded all. Upon my entrance, Usher rose from a sofa on which he had been lying at full length, and greeted me with a vivacious warmth which had much in it, I at first thought, of an overdone cordiality, of the constrained effort of the ennui man of the world. A glance, however, at his countenance convinced me of his perfect sincerity. We sat down, and for some moments while he spoke not, I gazed upon him with a feeling half of pity, half of awe. Surely man had never before so terribly altered in so brief a period as had Roderick Usher. It was with difficulty that I could bring myself to admit the identity of the man being before me with the companion of my early boyhood, yet the character of his face had been at all times remarkable. A A cadaverousness of complexion, an eye large, liquid, and luminous beyond comparison, lips somewhat thin and very pallid, but a surpassingly beautiful curve, A nose of a delicate Hebrew model, but with a breadth of nostril unusual in similar formations. A finely molded chin, speaking, in its way of prominence, of a want of moral energy. Hair of a more than web-like softness and tenuity. These features, with an inordinate expansion above the regions of the temple, made up altogether a countenance not easily to be forgotten. And now, in the mere exaggeration of the prevailing character of these features, and of the expression they were wont to convey, lay so much of change that I doubted to whom I spoke.
1: You could just take us to the end of that. Okay, yeah. yeah. Shatner pause. Uh, the, now,
0: <laughs> the, the now ghastly pallor of the skin and the now miraculous luster of the eye above all things startled and even awed me. The silken hair too had been suffered to grow all unheeded and as in its wild gossamer texture it floated rather than fell about the face. I could not, even with effort, connect its arabesque expression with any idea of simple humanity.
1: Okay, so I get the idea of Christian church, gothic overtones, and then we get uh, to, I think, confirm or strengthen that impression that gloom now has become irredeemable, which I take to be a religious connotation. Mm -hmm. Cadaverousness of complexion, eye, large, liquid, and luminous beyond comparison... I'm going to float the idea that the tarn is literally filling him up. Hmm. So it's, it's manifesting in the liquidity of the eye. And then, interesting, a Hebrew nose, an uh, arabesque appearance, and then this wild, this silken hair to take, I envision as blonde, which floats around the face.
2: You're thinking of a halo, I'm guessing.
1: I am so, but, but look at the parts. Like he's, um, Poe, Poe, Baudelaire was, was a huge fan of Poe and Baudelaire speaks of the ennui man, but also of the sedimented, the way in which what I'm just going to call a sedimented culture, that is one that has just so many different types of morals and, um, uh, different, yeah, different worlds, different cultural worlds folded into itself that at a certain point it can't really digest them. And he this this character looks like that to me. So the tarn in the eyes, but then more culturally living in a church, both a Hebrew nose, an arabesque look, and a Christian halo. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah? Mm-hmm. And he's he's this highly cultured human being who's reading from, you know, the... The great books of all the, of the Western culture, which is itself sedimented, so I I think these are these are important hints for helping us understand what's going on in this house and what it's supposed to signify.
0: Mm-hmm. Is is there something then? So I, there's two questions I have kind of with this. One is is part of the conflict if the natural world and the human world are kind of. Um, both synchronized in some way or or running parallel in some way as far as in the storyline. Is it... Is is the conflict potentially some sort of refinement um, as far as intellect or religion contrary to, like, natural order? And that's what is kind of bringing about possibly the destruction of the House of Usher? That's...
1: Uh, Yes, yeah, Sorry.
0: And no, the second the second part is is like, what do we make of the consistent uh, introduction of the idea of dreams? Because we haven't talked about that yet. But it's in the first paragraph. It's it's in like the fourth paragraph. Shaking yeah. off from my spirit what must have been a dream, I scanned more narrowly the real aspect of the building. So there's this dreamlike state that at least the narrator keeps pointing to. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to float those two questions to see yeah. what you guys' thoughts were.
1: Well, let me take the the, the first one first. Yeah, I do take it that um, if I write about thinking this character is, is uh, deeply sedimented, that's the word I'll use just to say there's all kinds of different cultures piled on top of each other. So Jewish, ancient Greek, Roman, Christian, right? contact with other parts of the world and all the books that come out of this and the learning and the, the high degree of intellectual life. I think in this being, it's it's gotten to the point that, that uh, he's not only fractured, but weakened by it and i think in in light of that weakness which looks like the you know the highest development of the human mind actually the uh, the allegedly non-sentient entities uh, or at least less sophisticated entities in the case of plants are are reasserting themselves and showing the fragility of this little sort of human blip in the grand scheme of things that manifests as a highly developed and sophisticated culture mm-hmm
2: and to add to that, I think um, your use of the word parallel made some sense to me, Brian, that um, if we think of the respect in which the surface and the depth of a body of water are kind of parallel to one another, uh, we have the image of the house in the surface of the tarn, but there might be things going on in the depths of the tarn. And similarly, we have a, a person here who... Um, some indications say, is very young, right? The narrator has, said, uh, has remarked on how short a time the change has taken uh, to take place. Um, it seems like he hasn't seen him since childhood, since they were childhood friends, and that's apparently a short time. Yet he seems somehow to have become very old in a short time. I think that's a perfect image of a sedimented, or maybe I'd call it an undigested antiquity. Right Here's someone who somehow is very young and very old at the same time. He has all these things in him, but he doesn't know what's beneath the surface. They're on yes. his surface.
1: Yeah, And as for the dream element, Brian, I think that's going to become really important. I think Jeff already pointed out that early on, there's this sense of vapors coming from the tarn. So in a way, I think, and then we're told, you know, it's kind of opium-like. I think there's a way in which he is getting stoned, literally, at the end of the story, that... Uh, vapor rising from the tarn becomes very thick, and I think the uh, the narrator himself starts to sort of lose his mind too. In other words, if he were to stay in the house longer, he would go the way of the of the ushers. Um, so I think that's that. In addition to just contributing to the creepiness of of the dreamlike quality, where where one's mind is trying to make sense of things but can't because nothing be, because it eludes you, I think the suggestion is also that the, there are vapor noxious vapors coming from that tarn.
2: Mm-hmm. It would make some sense to remark on the alternation between dream and reality, because that seems, again, parallel to the difference between the two ushers, one being mind without body and one being body without mind.
1: Nice. Yes. Yeah. OK, so let's have a look at that. I, um, there's a so it ends up for those of you who maybe haven't, haven't read it yet. Um the sister whose name is Madeline has this odd disease and she just goes creepily floating by them without saying anything at a certain point um and um but we know she's in, she has whatever she has makes her catatonic at a certain point he uh, her brother who ends up being who we're told later is a twin decides that well she's dead and rather than burying her uh, as one might normally do he's going to stick her in a tunnel in the basement of the house um and before we think about that i just want to um note a detail that i think a reader could miss the first time going through and i brian it might be again hard for hard for us to all be working with where exactly to read but i'm interested if you if you can find otherwise i could read it um there's a painting hanging on one of the walls um that i take it roderick has produced maybe not it doesn't matter either way but it's hanging on the walls and it's just a detail that's included that at first looks obscure but i i think it's it's intentional so it has meaning do you see where that is by is, the utter is, sim- yeah
0: is this the paragraph that starts one of the phantasmagoric conceptions of my friend
1: that's it yes thank you okay
0: <clears throat> one of the phantasmagoric conceptions of my friend partaking not so rigidly of the spirit of abstraction, may be shadowed forth, although feebly, in words. A small picture presented the interior of an immensely long and rectangular vault or tunnel, with low walls, smooth, white, and without interruption or device. Certain accessory points of the design served well to convey the idea that this excavation lay at an exceeding depth below the surface of the earth. No outlet was observed in any portion of its vast extent. And no torch or other artificial source of light was discernible, yet a flood of intense rays rolled throughout, and bathed the whole in ghastly and inappropriate splendor.
1: Okay. Okay. So if we could, so we get that image, and then I think Poe quite artfully has an interlude where where uh, we're told about Madeline, but also about Usher's uh, odd philosophy that sentience might extend to other things um if I could see if I could find that passage um yes yeah right after the he gives a long poem six stanza poem do you see there's a paragraph that begins I well remember
0: yeah yeah I well remember that suggestions arising from this ballad led us into a train of thought wherein there became manifest an opinion of ushers, which I mention not so much on account of its novelty, for other men have thought thus, as on account of the pertinacity with which he maintained it. This opinion, in its general form, was that of the sentience of all vegetable things. But in his disordered fancy, the idea had assumed a more daring character and trespassed under certain circumstances, under certain conditions, upon the kingdom of an organization. I lack words to express the full extent of the earnest abandon of his persuasion. The belief, however, was connected, as I have previously hinted, with the gray stones of the home of his forefathers. The conditions of the sentience had been here, he imagined, fulfilled in the method of collocation of these stones, in order of their arrangement, as well as in that of the many fungi which overspread them, and of the decayed trees which stood around. Above all, in the long, undisturbed endurance of this arrangement, and in its reduplication in the still waters of the Tarn. Its evidence, the evidence of sentience, was to be seen, he said. And I hear started as he spoke in the gradual yet certain condensation of an atmosphere of their own about the waters and the walls. The result was discoverable, he added, in that silent yet importunate and terrible influence, which for centuries had molded the destinies of his family and which made him what I now saw him, what he was. Such opinions need no comment and I will make none.
1: (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then if you, Brian, if you could just jump us down. A little, just a little bit farther from where you were, um, there's a paragraph that begins at the request of Usher, and, and that one and the next one where they stuffed their sister, his sister, into it. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: At the request of Usher, I personally aided him in the arrangements for the temporary entombment. The body, having been encoffined, we two alone bore it to rest. The vault in which, it, in which we placed it, and which had been so long unopened that our torches, half smothered in its oppressive atmosphere, gave us little opportunity for an investigation, was small, damp, and entirely without means of admission for light, lying at great depth immediately beneath that portion of the building in which was my own sleeping apartment. It had been used, apparently, in remote feudal times, for the worst purposes of a dungeon keep and in later days as a place of deposit for powder, or some other highly combustible substance, as a portion of its floor, and the whole interior of a long archway through which we reached it, were carefully sheathed with copper. The door of massive iron had been, also, similarly protected. Its immense weight caused an unusually sharp grating sound as it moved upon its hinges. Having deposited our mournful burden upon trestles within this region of horror, we partially turned aside the yet unscrewed lid of the coffin and looked upon the face of the tenant. A striking similitude between the brother and sister now first arrested my attention, and Usher, divining perhaps my thoughts, murmured out some few words from which I learned that the deceased and himself had been twins, and that the sympathies of a scarcely intelligible nature had always existed between them. Our glances, however, rested not long upon the dead, for we could not regard her unawed, the disease which had thus entombed the lady and the maturity of youth had left, as usual, in all maladies of a strictly cataleptical character, the mockery of a faint blush upon the bo- bosom and the face, and that suspiciously lingering smile upon the lip, which is so terrible in death. We were placed and screwed down the lid, and having secured the door of iron, made our way with toil into the scarcely less gloomy apartments of the upper portion of the house.
1: Okay, so it turns out she either isn't dead which i suspect or she's reanimated but you see now having um this extended description of where they put her in this tunnel in the house that's lined with copper and therefore looks illuminated even though there's no light is depicted in the picture in the painting yeah what why that what's what's poe up to
0: well it's there you're it's a symbol of death to a degree but then the question is why draw why do a painting about death and it's an eternal death right because in the painting it kind of goes on forever it's not as entombed as the tomb because the tomb notionally even though it's kind of not well lit would have an end whereas this is like visible and never-ending so why why the painting of something like death and why um uh, it's also white, right? Isn't the painting like a white color instead of the copper?
1: Well, it's just illuminated. Is, is I think they oh, focus on the, on the light, the okay. way which it's illuminated, strangely, from okay. all, all areas without an obvious source of light.
2: Yeah, I mean, I have a, a couple thoughts. I don't know that it gets us all of the details, which I find uh, immensely interesting, but so he dreams of where she is going to, end up physically, it looks like. So that's already the opposition we've noted between him and her his mindfulness and her mindlessness. Um, she seems to have become a plant as far as I can tell, in the sense that she is a living thing that doesn't move of her own accord, but looks alive, right? There's something soft or yielding or um, some sign of, of life in it. Um, and it looks to me like uh, he is putting her where she belongs. I mean, the reason um, he gives, uh, and and Poe is very um, elliptical about this, it looks like the doctors want to dissect her, right? Or worse. uh, Or worse. (laughs) They're puzzled puzzled by her condition. Um, And uh, that might be a sign that uh, the modern world uh, doesn't know how to treat uh, dead things or living things that are like plants. But it looks to me like Roderick Usher is putting her where... Uh, she belongs in where he wishes he were.
1: Yeah. Okay. So that's that's my impression too. Because the well, for a number of reasons, but maybe most obviously, uh, it's just very weird to think you're going to stick your sister in a copper tunnel below the house. But also the way in which he sandwiches the sentience. Roderick's notion that the there's a sentience of of not only plants but stones, a sentience of all things, is between the 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 painting that I guess he does, and the bearing of his sister. So I take it these copper pipes are like roots of the house, right? They're running right below his bedroom, below the house, and he stuffs the sister in there, right? Um, so that's what I think might be, might be going on. Either she she literally belongs there because she's a plant, or it's the beginning of the house taking over Roderick's mind, hence giving him this idea, which manifests in the painting, to actualize its plan, right? Which is to, to take over uh, the human element of the House of Usher entirely.
0: But if that's, well, to, to Jeff's point, if that's where she belongs, why does she come back? Yeah. That'd be like the first question I had. And then the question is to Lisa's um, point, About the house kind of uh, claiming at least one of its living uh, or living-ish inhabitants. Um, Like when when the house claims both, the house destroys itself or is destroyed, right? So why... mm, How do I... Pose that in the form. Let's just do the first one. Why does Why does she come back if that's where she belongs?
2: Yeah, I think they must be the same question, right? In other words, the fall of the house and her returning are are two moments in the same series of events. And the way you put it, I thought was great. It kind of uh, says is Is the end of the story a failure for the house, or is it a success for the house's plan?
1: Remember the house, Brian. To your question, the house. Well maybe it's a version of jeff's question are we to think of the house primarily as the human organization of these stones or is that an imposition that this more ancient apparent disorder he calls it in organization but really i want to say maybe them doing their own thing um is restoring that like it's reasserting it's it's its difference and distinction from the human mind at the beginning of the story that we talked about or let me put it maybe slightly differently we're in, we're invited to think at the beginning that there's no mind in the house but it could be just by the end what's really creepy is that it's just not a human mind but it is asserting itself and if that's the case then the collapse of the house is a win for it mm-hmm. or them <laughs>
2: Well, can we try looking at the spontaneous um, poetry that Roderick utters while he's playing the guitar? Um, I don't want to push us there too early, but it seems that, that it might at least incline us toward one or another interpretation. I mean, uh, I can just give a kind of short um, uh, impression that I have of what the story is about. Um, it's a song that tells about how thought once ruled but was then somehow um, supplanted and didn't exactly become thoughtless, but become became a kind of um, evil thought or um, self-contradictory thought. Uh, it's a little hard to, I mean, the word evil is used, but it's a little hard to characterize what the final state is. It looks like it's not simply thoughtless, but it's uh, a worse state than the than the initial state. Now, could this be uh, the house speaking through Roderick
1: somehow? Well, again, if if we want to make the house, let me just totally personify it. The house wants to be the house. Um, then I guess I just puzzled by the what Brian read about the stones, the co-location of the stones. And he um, he wants to call that that is the the narrator in the house. The it's in organization as opposed to the human organization. But my inclination is to, as I as I said before, to think, well, the there might be something deeper than the house, namely the stones. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, can yeah. I
2: try and maybe see if I'm, if I'm following you? Um, so in that passage about Roderick's belief, it looks like... Um, yeah, it's strange. On the one hand, he believes that um, maybe even um, non-living matter thinks. Right. Right? On the other hand, it looks like he's giving voice to what is basically the modern theory of the mind, which is that non-thinking things in an arrangement come to think right? And so, could there be some kind of criticism here of that view that, that Roderick has really gotten underneath and seen, well, if if the claim is that the whole thinks, then all the parts must think as well?
1: I, I think the latter is correct, yes. And I think, so I think the lack of integrity of usher in what we were calling a sedimentation or the inability to digest just too many different cultures um, uh, s- supports this notion also, that that apparent effort to create something very sophisticated out of something more primordial is unstable, at least at a certain point. And this other thing, which I think in the story, at least the suggestion is, it would be wrong to think of it as inanimate or unthinking. Um, that entity reasserts itself. So I, I, I want to
0: posit, you, know, you you talk about the kind of primordial versus... Um, kind of what what's in the poem right the idea of um in the monarch thought's dominion it stood there this kind of like higher ideal the house in and of itself is unnatural right the house isn't natural but this the the natural world is trying to impose itself on the house some way or it's just it, not even maybe trying it's just happening right it's the the fungi is everywhere in the house right mm. so i think to a degree it's not necessarily like the house versus the ushers, right? I, I think the house and the ushers are like the same thing. It's it's nature against the house and nature yes. against the ushers, right? So what... Oh, I had this question in my head before I started this ramble and now it's, <laughs> now it's gone. But I guess I'm just trying to get to, you know, what are the things that are in conflict here, right? It seems to be that... Nature is in conflict with the house, and nature is in conflict with the ushers. And why? Why is that? Why? Why is that the case?
1: Well, maybe. So it's a complicated. It's a. It's a weird idea. So let's just start with that. Um, and what I mean by that is, even to use the word nature is already maybe a step too far in the human direction. So Brian, I I agree with you that a house is a human idea, right? And then we reorganize. Um, things in the world to make the house that's supposed to serve us. Um, I don't know if there's a capital N nature in this book, but certainly there does look like, first and foremost, beginning with the tarn, but not only because the fungi are on board with this too. And we're also told the the rocks as well. um, uh, A breakdown of the building up thing that human beings do so analysis like at the beginning of the story the narrative tells us of is you know we could analyze thing but can we analyze the source of our analysis that we can't do and i feel like it's that second part it's the source of analysis that we might say is is asserting itself it's the pre-analytical the pre-organizing into higher conditions thing um, so to use to use jeff's jeff's formulation of it Yeah, it might be the case that, or I think it clearly is the case, that that sophisticated human activity of analysis um, is being opposed by whatever it was that that gives rise to analysis, which is mysterious to us. But it might be deeply synthetic uh, in a way that looks disorganized or, uh, to use their word, inorganized. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to the human mind. That, that we somehow can't quite grasp, but it's more powerful.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, an image occurred to me that um, made some sense to me, which is that um, we sometimes see trees that grow from a common root into two distinct trunks. And those trees are weak, uh, and the taller they get, the more advanced they get, the weaker they are. And you wonder sometimes to yourself, well, why, why is it that a tree ever allows itself to become divided in that way? And it, it, I think the answer is something like that the tree's growing, but it's growing locally. Each part is doing what it yes. wants to do. Um, and that doesn't guarantee that what you're going to get is solid all the way up. It might give you something that's grown so that there's a crack that runs down. The middle, and uh, if that crack, say, is between mind and, and body, uh, something that sounds like the Cartesian dualism, if yes. that goes a long way back, then maybe what you've got is is going to be fragile.
1: Yes. So let's cycle back to Brian's earlier question in light of what we just did here. Madeline, or the the, the female twin, comes back um, to claim the mind, right? So the body, the body, which has now become like a plant, insofar as the mind is lacking, comes back to take the mind, then they're sort of reunified, but, but not in the way we might ideally hope, which is a healthy human being with an integration of mind and body, but with a dissolution into that primordial oneness that actually obliterates the human being. Right. So, so, they, so, so the whole thing falls down into the primordial ooze, so to speak. Yeah,
2: yeah nothing but the tarn remains. Yeah. And our narrator.
1: Yep. So back to that opening image of that whole world, the whole House of Usher world had its contents in the tarn, right? And then they sort of manifested in this organized external world, but by the end of the story, the tarn takes it all back.
2: Mm -hmm. And I guess we could say that because as a result of the collapse, the image of the house in the tarn disappears, uh, we could say that whatever consciousness uh, has become... um, latent again yes
1: doesn't see
0: itself anymore
1: yeah yeah
0: so so what's the cleopatra reveal then guys (laughs) like
1: (laughs) that wasn't enough for you (laughs) I, i don't know i'm
0: just i'm just waiting for like something like and uh that's why mind like and reason like Will never win, and that's you know that's why evil triumphs over good because good is dumb or something like that. <laughs> well, maybe well, wait.
2: for me this is a, a and then and then least you can have your reveal. But maybe for me the Halloween thought is this: um, is it a horrifying thought to think that everything is alive and not human?
1: Yeah. And I, I I think I agree with that, but I guess I'd add on um something more characteristic of Poe, I think, at least to the extent I've been exposed to his work, and that is um he precisely resists the easy resolution into the aha moment where everything falls into place. That's I think part of the point of his writing um is to keep you sort of where Jeff puts us, with just with a with a kind of question that may be a little creepy. Um, and remains unresolved. Just hints. I mean, in other words, he puts us into a position like the akin to the one that the narrator himself finds himself in. Just the weird. The world is is maybe a little weirder than we might typically think.
0: It, it eludes it, our. It, yeah. it is in this story. It it, elu- it eludes our uh, <laughs> perfect uh, understanding of it. Yeah. M- much like the story.
1: Yeah. Cool. It's an experience. It's deeply not just uh, does it does it ask you to analyze it, but it's also just experientially wonderful because of his ability to leverage this creepy atmosphere.
0: Yeah, the prose is super creepy, like yeah. which we all kind of know that Poe does that, but it's a good reminder when you're kind of reading through this and just like, wow, there's a lot of commas in here, but he makes it work. You
1: know, it does. <laughs> he <yeah>. it
0: <laughs> cool. Well, we're at our time, guys. Yeah alright well thank you all for tuning in uh, a little Halloween special it'll be out a little bit late we're recording this like two days after Halloween but um, we'll get it out soon and then back to some Aristotle and uh, like I said just a reminder if you want cool sound effects you can go to the website combatclassics.org and uh, hit the donate button on the bottom uh, but <laughs> thanks Lisa, thanks Jeff thank yeah. you gentlemen <laughs> thank you both of you we'll see you guys
1: next time then. yes